Section twenty of a book of scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Brodie and Peace, Part Two, Charles Peace. Charles Peace, after the habit of his kind, was born of scrupulously honest parents. The son of a religious file-maker, he owed to his father not only his singular piety, but his love of edged tools. As he never encountered an iron bar whose scission baffled him, so there never was a fire-eating Methodist to whose ministrations he would not turn a repentant ear. After a handy portico and a rich booty, he loved nothing so well as a soul-stirring discourse. Not even his precious fiddle occupied a larger space in his heart than that devotion which the ignorant have termed hypocrisy. Wherefore his career was no less suitable to his ambition than his inglorious end, for he lived the king of housebreakers, and he died a warning to all evildoers with a prayer of intercession trembling upon his lips. The hero's boyhood is wrapped in obscurity. It is certain that no glittering precocity brought disappointment to his maturer years, and he was already nineteen when he achieved his first imprisonment. Even then twas a sorry offence, which merited no more than a month, so that he returned to freedom and his fiddle with his character unbesmirched. Serious as ever in pious exercises, he gained a scanty living as a strolling musician. There was never a tavern in Sheffield where the twang of his violin was unheard, and the skill wherewith he extorted music from a single string earned him the style and title of the modern Paganini. But such an employ was too mean for his pride, and he soon got to work again, this time with a better success. The mansions of Sheffield were his early prey, and a rich plunder rewarded his intrepidity. The design was as masterly as its accomplishment. The grand style is already discernible. The houses were broken in quietude and good order. None saw the opened window, none heard the step upon the stair. In truth, the victim's loss was his first intelligence. But when the booty was in the robber's own safe-keeping, the empiricism of his method was revealed. As yet he knew no secret and efficient fence to shield him from detection. As yet he had not learnt that the complete burglar works alone. This time he knew two accomplices, women both, and one his own sister. A paltry pair of boots was the clue of discovery, and a good stretch was the proper reward of a clumsy indiscretion. So for twenty years he wavered between the crowbar and the prison-house, now perfecting a brilliant scheme, now captured through recklessness or drink. Once, when a mistake at Manchester sent him to the hulks, he owned his failure was the fruit of brandy, and after his wont delivered from the dock a little homily upon the benefit of sobriety. Meanwhile his art was growing to perfection. He had at last discovered that a burglary demands as diligent a forethought as a campaign. He had learnt that no great work is achieved by a multitude of minds. Before his boat carried off a goodly parcel of silk from Nottingham, he was known to the neighbourhood as an enthusiastic and skilful angler. One day he dangled his line, the next he sat peacefully at the same employ, and none suspected that the mild-mannered fisherman had, under the cloud of night, 
dispatched a costly parcel to London. Even the years of imprisonment were not ill-spent. Peace was still preparing the great achievement of his life, and he framed from solitary reflection, as well as from his colleagues in crime, many an ingenious theory, afterwards fearlessly translated into practice. And when at last he escaped the slavery of the jail, picture-framing was the pursuit which covered the sterner business of his life. His depredation involved him in no suspicion. His changing features rendered recognition impossible. When the exercise of his trade compelled him to shoot a policeman at Wally Range, another was sentenced for the crime. And had he not encountered Mrs. Dyson, who knows but he might have practised his art in prosperous obscurity until claimed by a coward's death. But a stormy love-passage with Mrs. Dyson led to the unworthy killing of the woman's husband, a crime unnecessary and in no sense consonant to the burglar's craft, and Charles Peace was an outlaw with a reward set upon his head. And now came a period of true splendour. Like Fielding, like Cervantes, like Stern, Peace reserved his veritable masterpiece for the certainty of middle life. His last two years were nothing less than a march of triumph. If you remember his constant danger, you will realise the grandeur of the scheme. From the moment that Peace left Bannercross with Dyson's blood upon his hands, he was a hunted man. His capture was worth five hundred pounds. His features were familiar to a hundred hungry detectives. Had he been less than a man of genius, he might have taken an unavailing refuge in flight or concealment. But, content with no safety unaffected by affluence, he devised a surer plan. He became a householder. Now a semi-detached villa is an impregnable stronghold. Respectability oozes from the dusky mortar of its bricks, and escapes in clouds of smoke from its soot-grimed chimneys. No policeman ever detects a desperate ruffian in a demure black-coated gentleman, who day after day turns an iron gate upon its rusty hinge. And thus, wrapped in a cloak of suburban piety, peace waged a pitiless and effective war upon his neighbours. He pillaged Blackheath, Greenwich, Peckham, and many another home of honest worth, with a noiselessness and a precision that were the envy of the whole family. The unknown and intrepid burglar was a terror to all the clerkdom of the city, and though he was as secret and secluded as peace, the two heroes were never identified. At the time of his true eminence he resided in Evelina Road, Peckham, and none was more sensible than he how well the address became his provincial refinement. There he installed himself with his wife and Mrs. Thompson. His drawing-room suite was the envy of the neighbourhood. His pony-trap proclaimed him a man of substance. His gentle manners won the respect of all Peckham. Hither he would invite his friends to such entertainments as the suburb expected. His musical evenings were recorded in the local paper, while on Sundays he chanted the songs of Zion with a zeal which Clapham herself might envy. The house in Evelina Road was no mere haunt of quiet gentility. It was chosen with admirable forethought and with a stern eye upon the necessities of business. Beyond the garden wall frowned a railway embankment which enabled the cracksman to escape from his house without opening the front door. By the same embankment he might, if he chose, 
convey the trophies of the night's work, and what mattered it if the windows rattled to the passing train? At least a cloud of suspicion was dispelled. Here he lived for two years with naught to disturb his tranquillity, save Mrs. Thompson's taste for drink. The hours of darkness were spent in laborious activity. The open day brought its own distractions. There was always Bow Street wherein to loaf, and the study of the criminal law lost none of its excitement from the reward offered outside for the bald-headed fanatic who sat placidly within. And the love of music was Peace's constant solace. Whatever treasures he might discard in a hurried flight, he never left a fiddle behind, and so vast became his pilfered collection that he had to borrow an empty room in a friend's house for its better disposal. Moreover, he had a fervent pride in his craft, and you might deduce from his performance the whole theory and practice of burglary. He worked ever without accomplices. He knew neither the professional thief nor his lingo, and no association with jailbirds involved him in the risk of treachery and betrayal. His single colleague was a friendly fence, and not even at the gallows' foot would he surrender the fence's name. His master quality was a constructive imagination. Accident never marred his design. He would visit the house of his breaking until he understood its ground plan and was familiar with its inhabitants. This demanded an amazing circumspection, but Peace was as stealthy as a cat, and he would keep silent vigil for hours rather than fail from an overkeen anxiety. Having marked the place of his entry, and having chosen an appropriate hour, he would prevent the egress of his enemies by screwing up the doors. He then secured the room wherein he worked, and the job finished, he slung himself into the night by the window, so that ere an alarm could be raised, his pony-trap had carried the booty to Evelina Road. Such was the outline of his plan, but being no pedant, he varied it at will. Nor was he likely to court defeat through lack of resource. Accomplished as he was in his proper business, he was equally alert to meet the accompanying risks. He had bought the art of cousining strange dogs to perfection, and for the exigence of escape his physical equipment was complete. He would resist capture with unparalleled determination, and though he shuddered at the shedding of blood, he never hesitated when necessity bade him pull the trigger. Moreover, there was no space into which he would not squeeze his body, and the iron bars were not yet devised through which he could not make an exit. Once, it was at Nottingham, he was surprised by an inquisitive detective who demanded his name and trade. "'I am a hawker of spectacles,' replied Peace, "'and my licence is downstairs. Wait two minutes, and I'll show it to you.' The detective never saw him again. Six inches only separated the bars of the window, but Peace asked no more and thus silently he won his freedom. True, his most daring feat, the leap from the train, resulted not in liberty but in a broken head. But he essayed a task too high even for his endeavour, and despite his manacles at least he left his boot in the astonished warder's grip. No less remarkable than his skill and daring were his means of evasion. Even without a formal disguise he could elude pursuit. At an instant's warning, his loose plastic features would assume another shape. Out shot his lower jaw, and as if by magic, 
the blood flew into his face until you might take him for a mulatto or if he chose he would strap his arm to his side and let the police be baffled by a wooden mechanism decently finished with a hook thus he roamed london up and down unsuspected and even after his last failure at blackheath none would have discovered charles peace in john ward the single-handed burglar had not woman's treachery prompted detection indeed he was an epitome of his craft the complete burglar made manifest not only did he plan his victories with previous ingenuity but he sacrificed to his success both taste and sentiment his dress was always of the most sombre his only wear was the decent black of everyday godliness the least spice of dandyism might have distinguished him from his fellows and peace's whole vanity lay in his craft nor did the paltry sentiment of friendship deter him from his just course when the panic aroused by the silent burglar was uncontrolled a neighbour consulted peace concerning the safety of his house the robber having duly noted the villa's imperfections and having discovered the hiding-place of jewellery and plate complacently rifled it the next night though his self-esteem sustained a shock though henceforth his friend thought meanly of his judgment he was rewarded with the solid pudding of plunder and the world whispered of the mysterious marauder with a yet colder horror in truth the large simplicity and solitude of his style sets him among the classics and though others have surpassed him at single points of the game he practised the art with such universal breadth and courage as were then a revolution and are still unsurpassed but the burglar ever fights an unequal battle one full step and defeat overwhelms him for two years had john ward intimidated the middle-class seclusion of south london for two years had he hidden from a curious world the ugly furrowed visage of charles peace the bald head the broad-rimmed spectacles the squat thick figure he stood but five feet four in his stockings and adds yet another to the list of little great men should have ensured detection but the quick change and the persuasive gesture were omnipotent and until the autumn of eighteen seventy eight peace was comfortably at large and then an encounter at blackheath put him within the clutch of justice his revolver failed in its duty and valiant as he was at last he met his match in prison he was alternately insolent and aggrieved he blustered for justice proclaimed himself the victim of sudden temptation and insisted that his intention had been ever innocent but none the less he was sentenced to a lifer and the mask of john ward being torn from him he was sent to sheffield to stand his trial as charles peace the leap from the train is already recorded and at his last appearance in the dock he rolled upon the floor a petulant and broken man when once the last doom was pronounced he forgot both fiddle and crowbar he surrendered himself to those exercises of piety from which he had never wavered the foolish have denounced him for a hypocrite not knowing that the artist may have a life apart from his art and that to peace religion was an essential pursuit so he died having released from an unjust sentence the poor wretch who at wally range had suffered for his crime and offering up a consolatory prayer for all mankind 
In truth, there was no enemy for whom he did not intercede. He prayed for his jailers, for his executioner, for the ordinary, for his wife, for Mrs. Thompson, his drunken doxy, and he went to his death with the sure step of one who, having done his duty, is reconciled with the world. The mob testified its affectionate admiration by dubbing him Charlie, and remembered with effusion his last grim pleasantry. "'What is the scaffold?' he asked with sublime earnestness, and the answer came quick and sanctimonious. "'A shortcut to heaven!' End of section 20